Before I jump into today's sermon, um, in Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, if you've read that account, you have the people who have decided upon their own, it's not a command from the Lord, to build a tower that reaches up to heaven. And so God was displeased by that, so he confuses their language in such a way that they do not understand each other. And that was God's way of sending them out into the different areas. And then you fast forward to the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost, and what you have is all the nations coming together under one area in Jerusalem, and there are multiple languages being spoken, but each person with a very real language, an intelligible language, uh, understands what is being said. So you go from not understanding in Genesis 11 to Acts chapter 2 now to understanding. And there's different languages. And we praise God for that because through faithful church witness in Matthew chapter 8 to go into all the nations and to baptize and to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ, we are recipients of God's grace. In human history, God works sovereignly throughout human history. If you think you're here by accident, you need to think again. God has led you here for a reason, right? And so we praise God for that. And so the question is, Pastor Ola, what's your point of your introductory remarks? Well, the point is, we got Brother Vladimir. Pastor Vladimir comes from Cuba. His native tongue is Spanish. And then when he's up here, I understand him. And now we have Pastor Corey, whose native tongue is English, but he spoke Spanish this morning, and guess what? I understand him. Isn't that amazing? Praise the Lord. That happens in a New Testament gospel-centered church, right? Where we understand the truth. We're not confused. We're not trying to make things up. We actually understand what is being said, so we praise God for that. So we're in Luke chapter 4, verse 38. Luke 4, verse 38, I think Pastor Vladimir said that if you want to use the Pew Bible, the Black Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 808, page 808, so feel free to use that. But one of the questions before us is this. What is the model for gospel ministry? What is the model for gospel ministry? And the purpose of ministry, we would all agree, is the glory of God. And all of God's people said, Amen. The tools of ministry are the Word of God and prayer. The privilege of ministry is growth. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't, but when we have the privilege to do so, we see it from time to time. The power of ministry is the Holy Spirit. I hope we understand that. That the power of gospel ministry is not in and of ourselves, is not entertainment-driven, it's not our thoughts, it's not our opinions, it's not our ideas, it's not a recommendation, it's definitely not Hollywood, it's definitely not the military, it's definitely not our government. The power of ministry is the Holy Spirit. And the model for ministry, and here's the answer to the question, the model for gospel-centered ministry is Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ. So again, we're in Luke 4, starting in verse 38. And the main point that I want to get across this morning, you'll see in your bulletin, 
is Jesus was sent to preach. Jesus was sent to preach. And so we're going to see this main point in three other areas, or three other sub-points. Number one, physical healing, verse 39 and 40 and 42. The second point, spiritual healing, we see that in verse 41. And the third and final point is the designated goal of Jesus' ministry. We see that in verse 43 and part of verse 42. So if you remember the background, which is verse 31 to 37, Jesus, by his power and his authority, exercised a demon out of a man. And when all the people saw that, they were amazed at the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 38, we're in a new scene. This is a completely different location, and what Jesus is about to do is amazing. So now he's in Simon Peter's home. He just left the Galilean synagogue. And this Simon Peter is the same Simon Peter that would be soon to be the disciple of Jesus Christ. And when he walks into this house, he walks into a problem. He walks into a situation where Simon Peter's mom, or mother-in-law, I should say, is sick. But this is not just some sort of minor sickness. This is a very high fever. This is a major sickness. And everyone in the house is worried. And so they go to the right person. They go to Jesus. They've heard what Jesus can do. And so they go to the right person. They go to Jesus, and they, on behalf of the mother-in-law, plead and request of Jesus to heal the mother-in-law. So let's look at this physical healing, point number one in verse 39. So read with me. Verse 39, And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid on his hands on every one of them and healed them. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, there's a storm, and Jesus and his disciples are in a boat. And the disciples are worried if they're going to survive this storm, and Jesus rebukes the storm. If you remember, Jesus says, be still. And what happens? The storm ceases. There's a great calm, and the people say, even the winds and the waves obey him. In Luke chapter 4, in the earlier part of our chapter, Jesus rebukes uh, a demon. And what happens? The demon comes out. That's the result. And the man is healed, completely healed. He's not partially. He is completely healed. Now in verse 39 of Luke chapter 4, the question becomes, Jesus can rebuke the wind and the waves. Jesus can rebuke demons. But can Jesus rebuke a high fever. In other words, an infection. Well, Jesus stands over this woman, Simon's mother-in-law, and he uses the same word here that he uses against the demon earlier on in the chapter, and he commands this sickness to leave. And what happens? Here's the result. And it, referring to the high fever, left her and Immediately, she rose and began to serve them lunch. 
It doesn't say that in your English version. But if you know anything about Sabbath, the Jewish Old Testament Sabbath, that it was customary that they would have a mid-morning service, Jewish service, and then follow that up by lunch. So that's where they're at right now. It's around lunchtime. They're in Simon Peter's home, and this woman is healed. You know, many of us have gone through a very difficult time in the last two and, two and a half years uh, around the world because of the COVID pandemic. Many of us got sick, and by God's grace, God healed us, sustained us, and carried us through difficult times, and now we're here today. But also, in God's goodness and providence, He's allowed some of his people to get sick, didn't allow them to recover, and he brought them all the way home to be with him. God is good in any one of those situations. But I remember when I got sick, it was the worst probably 10 to 14 days of my life. I didn't break the fever until day number four. I felt like dying. I felt like I was on the doorstep of death. And the Lord in his kindness allowed me to recover. But when I recover, when my fever broke, the last thing I wanted to do was serve other people. As a matter of fact, I wanted other people to serve me. I, said, I text, you know, we're a high-tech world when you can text your wife downstairs and say, sweetie, please bring me soup. Right? Please bring me snacks. Please bring me water. And my kids did a wonderful job. My wife did a wonderful job. I didn't want to serve anybody. I was left tired and weak and frail and feeble, but yet Jesus heals somebody, and they're completely recovered. This woman stands up like nothing ever happened to her, and she goes on to serve people. She has the right heart. She's like, I'm good to go, and she starts serving others. What a blessing. Jesus actually has the power and authority to rebuke infections. But that's Jesus. That's not you and that's not me. Now, see, we look at a text like this and we say, Jesus wants me to do the exact same thing. Where do you see that in the text? What Bible verse do you have to support that position if you do take that position? Are you Jesus or are you a weak, frail, mortal being? I'm about to prove this case here as we move on. Because some of you think you're Jesus and you have no business being like Jesus in this type of situation. What you need is Jesus. You're not Jesus. You need the Savior. And so Jesus was so popular for his healings that in verse 40, before the sunset, the people didn't just bring strangers, but they brought acquaintances and close friends and family and relatives to Jesus. Why? To be healed. To be healed of all their sicknesses and all of their diseases, right? It's amazing that Jesus can completely heal somebody of an infection and a disease. So Jesus lays his hands on these people. These people are healed. Can you imagine our gracious, loving, kind Savior, the one who is the Son of God, lays his actual hands on people and heals them out of his kindness for them. We're talking about hundreds of people. We're talking about thousands of people. That type of ministry is tiresome. It's wearisome. But we see the compassion of Jesus 
As a matter of fact, if you think that Jesus can only heal by touching them, Jesus can heal with the word, by the way. He doesn't have to touch them because in Matthew chapter 8, do you remember the centurion? The centurion is a Roman officer who's in charge of at least 100 people. And his servant is sick, probably going to die. And the centurion, this Roman officer, goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, please heal my servant. He's about to die. And Jesus says, I will go and heal your servant. And remember what the centurion said? No, 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 no. Don't come to my house. Why? Because I'm unworthy for you to be under my roof. Just say the word. I believe in you. Just say the word and my dear servant is healed. What does Jesus do? He heals the centurion's servant with the word. And he's completely healed. And if you read the other accounts, the parallel accounts, he was healed that exact same hour. It's not 24-hour delay. There's no buffering going on like the internet. It's boom, he's healed. Praise God, who can do that? Jesus the Christ can do that. And so whether he touches or he says the word, the people are truly healed. Now, there's going to be always scoffers and mockers, right? Because they're going to say, well, all the skeptics say, all the liberals say, well, Jesus healed, it was probably allergies, right? Because it's on the inside, it's an infection, it's a fever. It's not on the outside that you can see physically with your own two eyes. What are you going to do with the man that was born blind and Jesus healed him? What are you going to do with the man that was born deaf and now can hear? What are you going to do with the man who can't speak because he's dumb and mute? Not dumb in a bad way, a positive way. And now he speaks. What are you going to do with those miracles? Jesus heals and heals completely. The answer is not us. The answer is Jesus. That's the answer. That's the hope. They brought their problems to the right person. And we are called to bring our problems to Jesus. So, there's this discussion that's been happening for many, many years. And it's the idea or concept of modern-day healers. There are those who have made a business or a profitable trade off of saying, I'm a modern healer, you have a sickness, I can heal your sickness. Okay? Many of those take the position that we, as human beings, always deserve, that's the idea, we always deserve health and wealth and prosperity. That's the basic idea. I want to stand before you here and say this, do not believe them. You have no business believing them. Either the word of God is the word of God, and you trust that, or you don't. There's, no, there's none of this middle ground. Either you believe in the Bible, or you don't. If these people would only read their Bibles properly, they would see that the entire Old Testament scriptures point to Jesus. And the entire New Testament say, Jesus is here. Look to him and be saved. So, what we always deserve as human beings is God's wrath and judgment. 
and condemnation and hell for all of eternity. That's what we always deserve. Why? Because we have sinned against God, the holy living God, the creator, the one who made you, the one who saved you, and the one who sustains you. We've sinned against God. So what are you going to do with your sin? You're going to trust the modern-day healer to take away your sin? Sin is a violation of God's holy law and God's holy will. That's what sin is. Sin is not a disagreement between preferences. Like Pastor Vladimir likes English and Pastor Corey likes Spanish. That, that, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is things that ultimately matter regarding salvation. So we sin in word and thought and deed. I promise you that many of us today, before we walk through the front doors of this building, sinned against God in word and thought and deed. You're running late, like most people, and you kicked a cat on your way out the door because cat, the cat was in the way. We've sinned against God in word and thought and deed, against those who are near and dear to us. And those who say they can heal, let me ask this question. This is a logical question, by the way. Those who say they can genuinely heal, why are they not in every ICU, intensive care unit, in America, in every hospital, or around the world? Why are they not in every hospice unit, whether it's in an institutional building or in their own home? Why are they not in the places where people are truly living, hurting, dying, and suffering? Why are those people not there? Why do they always say that in order for God to hear your prayer, put some money in the envelope, and then God will hear your prayer, and your man, your woman, your aunt, uncle, and your dog will be healed? As you can tell, I drank some coffee this morning, <laughs> and I'm amped up. Because what those people are doing is absolutely criminal. It's wrong. It's sinful. Because when you ask them the question, ask them this question next time you run into these people. Ask them. I had a friend that genuinely, genuinely, sincerely pleaded with God that their aunt who has cancer, stage 4 terminal cancer, would be healed. And I genuinely prayed it. And they were not healed. Why didn't that happen? Ask those people that question. They answer, here's their standard answer. You did not have enough faith and belief in your prayer that God would heal this person. That is wrong. That is sinful. That is evil and wicked. How dare they put that on your conscience, in my conscience? That is wicked and evil. Is God God or not? God has the right to heal. God has the right to let us suffer. God, everything God does is good and right. God's wisdom is higher than our wisdom. His ways are better than our ways. Who are we to judge God? You're the creature. We are creatures. God is the creator. How dare we judge God? wrong it's absolutely evil 
to say that we don't have enough faith is why our loved one died wicked and evil. Does God guarantee healing all the time? The answer is no. He doesn't guarantee healing and blessing all the time. I read this last week in Job 1, 21. Do you remember what Job said? He said, after he lost, okay, after the conversation between the devil and God, and God allowed the devil to test Job. Then Job, if you read the the rhythm and the cadence of that text, it happens quick. He loses his servants. He loses his camels, right? He loses his sheep. The reason we don't connect to this story is we don't have sheep and we don't have camels. But the fact is this. Back in Old Testament time, to have sheep, to have camels, to have servants means you were wealthy. Meaning you you were financially independent. And he lost it all. As a matter of fact, he loved the chi- his children that he loved dearly. He lost them all due to a storm. He lost his own children. Those of you who are parents who have lost a child, you know the deep anguish and pain of losing a child. You know that pain. And nobody can relate to that pain unless they've lost a child. Job lost all his children. And what does Job say after all of this difficulty and all of these problems? He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Whether the Lord gives or the Lord takes away, the Lord is good. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God does not always guarantee blessing. And yet we live in America, the land of abundance. And we think we're entitled to all sorts of things, all sorts of amenities, all sorts of comforts. No. We need to read the Bible. Jesus says in John chapter 12, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If you read that that account, the Greeks have come into the area. They run into Jesus' disciples. And they say to Jesus' disciples, we want to meet Jesus. We heard about Jesus. We want to meet him. And so Jesus starts to explain his, his ministry to these Greeks. And he says this. He says, when a grain falls into the ground and dies then it will bear much fruit. He's talking about his life, death, and resurrection. And then Jesus says in verse 25, the one who controls his or her life out of self-preservation, self-control, ends up losing his or her life. Meaning at the end, the one who holds on to their life because I want to protect my way, my life, my time, my resources, is the one that actually loses their life. Because why? At the end of their life, they die in their sin. All the sin that they could hide from you and me, God knows about, God is going to judge. And they will be judged for every single solitary sin. They'll end up in hell. That's what a holy God does. See, if the holy God of the Bible does not judge, what you have is the fairy fairy tales, right? You have the tooth fairy. You have... Snow White, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. You have Mickey Mouse, Goofy, Daffy Duck. That's what you have if the holy God does not judge. 
But because God is your creator and mine, the Bible's very clear that he is holy. He's the thrice holy God. Don't mess with him. Don't trifle with him. Don't judge him. Don't cast a spurgeon on him. Don't stereotype him. This is the God who created us, who is holy. Jeremiah 9 talks about if we're going to boast about anything, if we're going to boast about anything, this is what we need to boast about. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Did you hear the word of God, God's people? We are to boast in the Lord, and only the Lord. To say that I can do something great for the Lord, and you can do something great for the Lord, is boasting of an evil kind. That is called pride, by the way. That's prideful. Let's get back to point number one. In the second half of verse 42, Luke 4, 42, second half, we're talking about physical healing. And Jesus was so popular for his physical healings, it says this, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. If you remember, Jesus is another location. He's doing mighty works. He's healing people. But yet these people now hear of his popularity. They're looking for him. They're searching for him. But what's interesting is they're looking for him because he can heal them. The text never says that they're looking for Jesus because they love Jesus. They're looking for Jesus because Jesus can give them some sort of physical benefit. They don't want Jesus the one who can heal, or they want Jesus, the one who can heal, but they don't want Jesus, the Christ. They don't want Jesus, the Christ. And so they prevent him and restrain him. They're not interested in Jesus' true purpose for being there. So let me summarize point one. We are not called to be modern-day healers. We're not called to have a perfect life. Think about it. How long have you been alive? Is your life perfect? No, it's not. We're not called to be modern-day healers. We're not called to have a perfect life. And so the physical healing of Jesus' ministry is just one part of his ministry. Now let's address the other part, the spiritual healing. That's point number two in verse 41. Verse 41. And before I address this point, I want to quickly summarize and restate what I said in last week's sermon. In last week's sermon, I addressed demon, position, demon possession <clears throat> from a biblical and theological perspective. I'm not going to rehash that entire sermon, but it's recorded and posted online, so feel free to listen to it there. But one of the questions that I posed before us was this, can a true Christian be demon-possessed? Can a true Christian be demon-possessed? If the word possessed means ownership and property of someone else, 
The biblical answer is no. A true Christian cannot be the property of a demon or the devil. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, be encouraged. If you're a true born-again believer, let me remind you of 1 John 4, 4. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you are born again, you have the Holy Spirit of God within you. Keep that in mind. Another question that I addressed is this. Can a true Christian be influenced or tempted to sin by demons or the devil? Can a true Christian be influenced or tempted to sin by demons or the devil? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes, but not all the time. There are times where we're tempted by our own flesh. That's James chapter 1. There's times that we're tempted by the world. We need to be very clear about this. Let me encourage you, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has, taken, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Did you hear that? But with the temptation, he, God, will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God provides way of escape from temptation. The question is, in that moment that you're tempted, will you honor God in your obedience or will you disobey God in your pride? But another question came up this week. Can non-Christians be demon-possessed? Let me say that again. Can non-Christians, meaning they're not born again, can non-Christians be demon-possessed? Well, the Bible gives at least two examples in the New Testament regarding this. But it does not apply to all non-Christians. My conviction is that it applies to some, not all. It applies to some non-Christians that are demon-possessed. Let me give you an example. You want to write this down. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. God is doing mighty miracles through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. People are hearing the gospel. People are being healed. And evil spirits are being exercised. By the time we get to verse 13, we have traveling Jewish exorcists that have come into the story. We see that in the text. And what these traveling Jewish exorcists want is the same ministry as the Apostle Paul. So they see the Apostle Paul healing and casting out demons. They say, well, we don't know Jesus, but we want the same ministry. And so what they do is they invoke the name of Jesus Christ. They have zero personal relationship with Jesus. Zero personal relationship with Jesus. Let me say that one more time. Zero personal relationship with Jesus. And yet they use Jesus' name as a magic bullet as a silver bullet, as some sort of magical incantation because they want to copy Paul's ministry, yet they don't want Jesus. They want the benefits of Jesus, but they don't want Jesus. I wonder how many of us are like these traveling Jewish exorcists. We want the benefits of Jesus. We don't want to go to hell. 
We don't want to be judged for our sin. We want to have a good life. Or we could go on and on and on. But they don't want Jesus. And so if you look at verse 14 of that text, their formula, they say this. The seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva said this. So these are the Jewish exorcists. They said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. If you understand this language, it's very, very impersonal. You can tell very quickly they don't know Jesus. They don't want Jesus. They just want the benefits of Jesus, but they don't want Jesus, the Son of God. Can you imagine the seven sons of Sceva? They say, I adjure you by the Jesus that Paul proclaims. They don't want Jesus. And then they ran into the right demon at the wrong time. Because the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you, seven sons of Sceva? Who are you? And what happens afterwards, right? In my family, we call it bak-bak. They got bak-bak to the extreme level, right? They got beat down very badly. In Acts 19, verse 16, and it says this, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, the seven sons of Sceva, and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. The evil, one evil spirit jumped out of this man, jumped on the seven sons of Sceva, beat them badly, kicked their rear ends, I don't know if they were fully naked, but they didn't have a lot of clothes. They fled and escaped, and they were hurt and injured. So what does that say about human strength versus demon strength? Well, it's very clear in the Bible, if you've read it, that demon strength is stronger than human strength. And this one demon beat up these seven people. But we shouldn't be concerned about the strength of an evil spirit, because we serve the God who has all power over everyone, including the evil spirits. And so the point of what I'm saying right now in Acts chapter 19 is, can some non-Christians be demon-possessed? I think there's biblical data to say yes. Why? Because what happens in Acts chapter 19 is a post-resurrection event. It happens after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. So meaning it's after the cross. It's after the resurrection. It's after the church is being established or being established. If you want another reference, write down Acts 16, verse 6. Acts 16, verse 6, dealing with the slave girl who has a spirit of divination. I don't have time to go into that. Now, I want to admit this, that if I am wrong regarding this question, feel free to correct me with an open Bible. That's the key language, with an open Bible. I'm, I'm open to correction. Back to Luke chapter 4, verse 41. It says this, read with me, And the demons also came out of many crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. 
So, there are multiple demons. There's a choir of demons, and they sing out, You are the Son of God. They understand who Jesus is. This is actually a cry or a scream or a shout of horror and surprise because the idea here is there's the potential for pain for these demons. And we've talked about recently how demons have supernatural knowledge. Not only do they have supernatural strength, but they have supernatural knowledge. Jesus doesn't introduce himself to these demons, but yet the demons know exactly who Jesus is. The demons see Jesus very, very clearly, by the way. But how do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus as just your homeboy? Do you see Jesus as simply your butler to serve you and what you want? Do you see Jesus as a mere man? You see Jesus as a good teacher. There's no good teacher but one. How do you see Jesus? They know exactly who Jesus is. They say he is the Son of God. You are the Son of God. If you remember in Luke chapter 4, verse 3, and in verse 9, Satan, or the devil, tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And he says, if you are the Son of God, he knows who Jesus is, but he tempts him. He says, if you are the Son of God, ask this stone or to command this stone to be what? Bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. Right? Tempting Jesus to sin. The idea here is, if Jesus sins even one time, he's no longer the Savior. He's no longer perfect. He can't help you, he can't help me, he can't help anybody. Just for one sin. But Jesus uses the word of God and defeats the devil. So, the devil knows exactly who Jesus is. But do you remember what Pastor Corey was reading earlier in Psalm chapter 2? Let's turn there real quick. Psalm chapter 2. Let me see if I could beat you there. Psalm chapter 2. And it says this. Psalms chapter 2 is talking about a very specific son, a very specific servant, and a very specific king. And all of those people, all of those titles is really dovetails into one person. Because when you look at verse number 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord, capital O, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the personal name of God, Yahweh. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the son is very, very special. But look what verse 9 says. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessels. He's talking about the nations. That the work of Christ, the authority of Christ, the power of Christ is greater than all the nations put together. And then verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in who? In the nations? No. In the son. In the son. So when we understand Psalm chapter 2 properly, we read the Bible properly, then what should come to mind is the Davidic kingdom. 
that God made a promise to David's household that through David's lineage that there would be a son. And this son would be the king. And the king would be the king of the kingdom. And the king is Jesus Christ. Some reason, for some reason in America, we take Psalm chapter 2 and we separate it from Luke chapter 4. No, they go together. Jesus is the Lord's anointed. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the King. Kiss the Son or be judged. That's the idea there. In Luke 4, verse 41, look what the demons say again after saying, you are the Son of God. Look at the second half of verse 41. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. I don't have time to go into all of this, but I want you to write this down. Mark 3, verse 12. Mark 3, verse 12. When you take Mark 3, verse 12, and you tie it and connect it to Luke 4, 41, what do you end up with? Well, you have to ask yourself this. Who is the world power at that time? Rome. Rome is the world power at that time. Are the Jews oppressed physically? Yes. Are the Jews oppressed spiritually? Yes. Are the Jews oppressed politically? Yes. Yes to all of that. And yet Jesus is not interested in being identified as a physical redeemer. He's not interested in political redemption. He's not interested in making sure you have the best car and the best house and the best retirement program. Jesus is not interested that you have the perfect health. Jesus is not interested in that. Jesus' earthly ministry is about redemption from sin. Redemption from sin. Being redeemed from God's judgment and condemnation and hell. Why do people go to hell? Not because they're good, because they're bad. To be technical, because they're sinful. God does not send Sin to hell. God sends sinners who commit sin to hell. Which leads us to point number three. The designated goal. Verse 43. The designated goal. Read with me in verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Jesus helps all of us out by actually saying and explaining what his purpose is here on earth. We don't have to guess. We don't have to figure things out. Jesus actually says it. It's to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns. The reason that we don't appreciate good news is we don't have really a clear understanding of the bad news. The bad news is this, we have all sinned against God. And because God is holy, he requires payment for that sin. God is the creator. And it's good to deal with sin. It's good to deal with those who sin. You know this very well. If you see a murderer running through the streets of Las Vegas, do you want him to go free? If you're sane not insane, and logical, and somewhat moral, you would say, murderers need to be judged. Rapists need to be judged. 
They all need to be judged. See, the problem is if you believe that the greatest problem in the world is a lack of finances and a lack of health, then you'll never, ever, ever appreciate the good news of Jesus Christ. Because what you need is the government at that time. What you need is a sugar daddy at that time. What you need is everything and everyone outside of Jesus. You don't want Jesus. Why? Because you don't see your sin clearly. The bad news is we have sinned against God. You have sinned against God. And what Jesus has done through his earthly ministry is to ensure the salvation of his people. His people are those who repent and trust in him. So if you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you are saved from the wrath to come. You are forgiven by Almighty God. You are loved by God, received by God upon your death. Praise God for that. So when we look at the good news of the kingdom of God, which is the good news of Jesus, this is what Jesus is saying, is that the kingdom of God's rule is here. Through the Messiah. Through the Christ. See, the Bible describes Satan or the devil as the God of what? This world. That's how the Bible describes the devil. The God of this world, small g. Not capital G, small g. And what Jesus has done is he has destroyed the power of the devil. Oh, he has power, but it's a limited power. But ultimately, he's defeated. How is he defeated? Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice for sin, for your sin and my sin. That's what Jesus did. On the cross, Jesus suffered the judgment, the full wrath, the merciless wrath of God on our behalf. That's what Jesus has done. God's justice demands satisfaction to appease his justice. God's wrath was kindled against us because of Jesus. See, all of God's full weight, full wrath and judgment was heading right towards us and for us until Jesus. And so it was necessary for Christ Jesus to suffer the judgment we deserve. If there's going to be any sort of salvation... It's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not your good works. What good works can you offer to the holy and perfect God? When I just mentioned earlier, most of us have sinned before we walk through the front doors of this building, in word and thought and deed. What can you offer God that God would accept and say, that's perfect? You have nothing. You have no leverage. You have no bargaining power. You have nothing to offer the holy and perfect God. But God provided his son. That's the beautiful part. Jesus is the one who bore our sin. Jesus is the one who became a curse for us and hung on a tree. Jesus is the one who lived and died for sinners. Jesus is the one who suffered the full measure of God's wrath for his people. That should cause all of us to be humble. If we're going to boast in anything, we boast in Jesus. That's the good news. But you can never appreciate the good news because we all think, or most of us think, we're good people. When we look at verse 44, 
Jesus is preaching. And to preach is to announce, is to proclaim, is to tell the truth of who? Of Jesus Christ. We're not trying to tell people our opinions. The good news is not good news unless we talk about Jesus. We don't have good ideas. We don't have good advice. We don't have good recommendations. We don't have good opinions. We don't have good feelings. We have good news. As good news, we are to herald what the Bible says about Jesus. And as heralds, we say, Jesus lived and died for sinners. And if you understand Jesus' style and type and method of preaching, he doesn't say, think about it and come back in three days. Jesus doesn't do that at all. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Meaning now. And what I'm afraid of is that those of us who don't know the gospel, don't share the gospel, isn't it time to know the gospel, know what you believe and why? And those of us who know the gospel, we think that the gospel is my personal testimony. How God saved Pastor Rolo when he was addicted to alcohol at age 11. And I tell you, you know what? I had a liver problem. I was drinking too much alcohol. God saved me. And when the person says to you, that's good for you, means nothing to me. Now you're in a corner. You got nowhere to go. You got no way to maneuver this conversation. You got no way to get to Jesus because it's all about you and your personal testimony. Your personal testimony, praise God for your personal testimony. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is God is holy, you're sinful, and you need Jesus. Therefore, repent and trust in him. That is a command. That is not optional. And you may say, well, I don't have the ability to do that. You're still morally responsible. You're still morally responsible. So when we preach, we should preach like Jesus preaches. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and trust in him. You remember last week when I said in Matthew chapter 12 that the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, right? I've been preaching for a while, so I'm starting to lose it here. So when we think about that, these Pharisees are accusing Jesus of healing a man by the power of Beelzebub, right? which is the prince of demons. And Jesus responds, you remember? In verse 25, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Jesus is saying, if Satan uses his power against Satan, then the house of Satan is divided and cannot stand. So in other words, what you're saying makes zero sense. But Jesus says in verse 29, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Again, the Bible describes the devil as the god of this world. But Jesus is the man who goes into the strong man's house, or in this case, the strong man's world, the god of this world, and Jesus binds up the devil, binds up the strong man, through the power and the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's where we see happening. Therefore, when we preach the good news of Jesus, 
in gospel-centered churches like this, and people believe, and people trust, and people turn away from sin, and they give their life to Jesus, and they serve Jesus, and Jesus is everything, we see the kingdom of God, the rule of God happening now. And Jesus is the one who came into this evil world to breathe this sinful air for your redemption and your salvation. Jesus is stronger than the strong man. Jesus has all power and authority. Jesus has defeated sin and death. So Jesus has stated to us who or what his goal and purpose is. As I wrap up here, I want to share something with you from the back of our bulletins here. I don't know if we talk about it too much, probably not, but I want to bring your attention to the Shorter Baptist Catechism. Question 113. Question 113 says, what do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? And here's the answer. In the second petition, which is, thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, that ourselves and others be brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. When we think about that, we should catechize our children, we should catechize our family members, but we need to understand that the kingdom of God is now. It's here. The gospel is being proclaimed in the forces of Satan are retreating even though they cause much havoc in this world. Don't be afraid of demons or the devil. Be afraid of the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. Be afraid of that one, God himself. Don't be afraid of demons. That's not your job. But resist the devil. Resist the demon with the tools that he's given you. Ephesians chapter 6, I talked about it. It's in the sermon last week. But don't fear the one who can do only something to the body, but nothing to the body and soul as it, it is cast into hell. Fear him who does that and has the power to do that. So, when we think about this, Jesus, 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 it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If you walk away from today's sermon, you're like, wonder, I wonder what the sermon was about. It's about Jesus. It's not about you rebuking demons and devils. You know, some preachers, as one preacher out of Scotland said, he says this, some preachers are like Chinese jugglers. He says, one has knives. The other person is standing against the wall with his arms stretched out like this. And the one with the knives throws the knife, and there's a knife right above his head. And a knife right here by his ear, and there's a knife that goes under his armpit. And there's a knife that goes through the fourth and fifth finger. And he's saying that they can throw within the precision of one hair, but they never strike the target. That doesn't apply to Jesus. He struck the target perfectly on the cross. He was raised from the dead, as the scriptures say, on the third day. He's the one who's defeated the devil, the demons, death, condemnation, judgment, and hell. 
Who else can do that? When we talk about physical healing, that we need to understand this biblically. When the Bible talks about physical healing, it must point us to Jesus who is greater. The greatness of Jesus. Not to us. When we talk about spiritual healing, it's not to point people to us, but to point people to Jesus, the Christ. And Jesus preached that the gospel is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is now here. And we should do the same. We're a gospel-centered church. So sermon in a sentence. Our purpose as a gospel-centered church and as individual Christians is to point others to Jesus. And the best way to accomplish this purpose is by sharing the gospel of Jesus, the king of the kingdom, with non-Christians. Will you do so? Will you be faithful? I pray that the Lord would help us be faithful to obey his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus is all and in all, that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that Jesus is the King of the kingdom, and we are simply your servants. Lord, forgive us where we have failed you and sinned against you, that we have misapplied and misunderstood your word. And Lord, we pray, O oh God, that you would help us now to be faithful, to be faithful. Thank you for the great salvation that we have in you, the one and only Savior. In Christ we pray. Amen.